Howdy folks, and welcome to the Six Ranch Podcast. On today's episode, you've just got me, and I'm going to tell you why. This morning, I went up to the local lake where I'd thrown out some crawfish traps last night because we're having a crawfish boil and a party today. So I was picking up the traps to uh, have some crawfish to eat for everybody. And I tied up my boat, pulled out, and as I pulled out, the rope that I tied the boat to got caught on the trailer and it undid my slip knot. So as I'm walking back down to the ramp, I see that my boat floating away. Like not that big of a deal. It's a lake, but it's embarrassing. There's a couple of guys standing on the dock. One of them is in a little drift boat that he had attached a downrigger to and had a little kicker motor on the back. And I'd seen him out there previously fishing. He offered to take me out to my boat, but look, it's my mistake. I should have tied a better knot. I wasn't paying attention. This water is cold. It was snow like yesterday, but I'm a Marine. I'm amphibious by nature. It's my mistake. I'm going to go get my boat. So I strip down, dive in, swim out, get my boat, come back, tie it up. And I go down to talk with the guy. And he'd seen some stuff from the Six Ranch Outfitters on YouTube about kokanee fishing. He recognized my boat. He wanted to ask me some questions about fishing. So I talk with this guy for a little bit. And it's apparent to me that he is a really interesting guy. And he was willing to talk about himself just briefly. But he had been out there fishing for four days straight and hadn't caught a kokanee yet. And that was his goal. So I, I told him everything that I could. And I noticed some patterns in his speech that, that were recognizable to me um, as having a brain injury. And, you know, without me asking, he got into it a little bit. As it turns out, this guy was a SEAL in Vietnam. And uh, President Kennedy started the SEAL program in 1962. And this guy had gotten shot um, in the face. So, so had gone in one cheek, through some teeth, out the other cheek. Had caused some complications. He'd had to have um, multiple surgeries on his head since then throughout his life. And he'd, he'd had a couple different careers. Um, he'd been in law enforcement. He'd been a cowboy. He'd been in construction. And now he's just out there trying to catch a fish and, and didn't really know how. I did not get this gentleman's name, but I'm going to do this podcast on how to catch a kokanee. And these techniques can be applied to most places that have kokanee. But I will tell you that what I'm talking about applies specifically to the body of water that I fish, which is a glacially created lake that's about 300 feet deep with very clear water, very steep edges, not much in the way of plant growth anywhere in the lake. Some people would even call this lake sterile, although I don't feel like that's an accurate description because there is an abundance of life in it. And it's the place where the world record kokanee was caught. When that world record kokanee was caught, the fish were exceptionally big, obviously, in this lake at that time. And I was in Afghanistan getting my ass shot at that time. Um, so I kind of missed out on, on this golden period of kokanee fishing. But now it's a lot of what I do in the springtime for guiding. Um, I've worked really hard at trying to figure it out. I've put a tremendous amount of time and research and effort into it. And now I can go out there and and reliably successfully catch fish. And I'm going to share with you the ways that I do that. So I'm going to get straight into it. Um, my philosophy on sharing fishing knowledge is that I'm confident in my skills and my abilities. And if I share these techniques with other people and they implement them, um, they can be successful too. But that doesn't take away from my experience on the water. Um, I'm a competitive guy, but I'm still confident that I'm going to be able to go out there and fish well enough to satisfy myself and my clients and still have a good time and be able to bring some food home. And I, I want other people to have that experience too. So a kokanee is a landlocked sockeye salmon. And previous to dams, this probably occurred naturally to some degree in the way that some rainbow trout remain in a river system and uh, some rainbow trout go on out to the ocean, come back, and are steelhead. Um, that means that they're an anatomous species of fish that is born in fresh water, goes and lives part of its life in salt water, 
comes back and spawns in fresh water again. Sockeye um, like to spawn in still water, like to spawn in lakes. So there's some places in the inland northwest, uh, like my local lake, like Redfish Lake in Idaho, where fish had to swim a a long distance. Um, We're over 600 river miles from the ocean here. So these sockeye were really going a long ways and, and going through a lot just to be able to make it back to their spawning grounds. Today, there's not a lot of that that naturally occurs, but we found that these kokanee can do well um, in enclosed systems. So you'll find kokanee all throughout the Intermountain West. Um, They're in Idaho, Montana, Oregon, Utah, Wyoming, Washington, California. They're all over the place. So there's a good chance that there are some kokanee in a body of water near you. Now, what do they eat? Kokanee are are filter feeders. So they have these things on their gills called gill rakers. And they're little filaments, like like, uh, the end of a comb. So they'll swim around with their mouth open and filter food out of the water with these gill rakers. And most of what they're consuming is plankton. And most of that is daphnia. Um, And they really like clumps of daphnia that are kind of stuck together. Because otherwise, the actual daphnia is really small. And that's why they kind of have to just swim around with their mouth open and hoover everything up. Kokanee are crepuscular. So they're most active morning and evening. And during the day, they tend to rise up in the water column. And at night, they tend to go down in the water column. They have predators that are beneath them in a lot of places like Mackinac or lake trout. So the lake trout tend to be down on the bottom and are waiting for those kokanee to descend at darkness so that they can start hunting them. And occasionally you'll find Mackinac that are beneath schools of kokanee during the day. So if you're trying to target lake trout or Mackinac, which I encourage you to do because they're out there eating these kokanee, just find the depth that your kokanee are at and then drop your Mackinac gear five or 10 feet below them. And that's a good way to try and pick up these lake trout. Another thing that kokanee can learn how to eat is mysis shrimp. Um, And mysis have been introduced into a lot of bodies of water. I think one of the first places that this was attempted successfully was in Lake Kukanusa, which goes between Montana and Canada. And the mysis are actually a competitor for the kokanee because they're occupying different portions of the water column at different times of day. So the mysis are descending during the day and ascending at night. So they're kind of switching places with the kokanee. Um, and they're also eating these daphnia and they're also eating zooplankton. So they're eating all kinds of plankton. Once a kokanee gets to a certain size, if he has mysis available, he can sort of switch from targeting plankton to targeting mysis, which is a larger animal and and a better food source for them. And that's when their flesh can get really bright orange and have tremendous amounts of, of fat in it, which is just delicious and wonderful. And, you know, I should mention that kokanee are tremendous table fare. They taste great. They're my favorite fish to eat, period. And if you live in an inland place like I do, and you like seafood like I do, you know, I just don't have access to to high-quality salmon because that's a coastal fishery. Once a salmon swims 600 river miles back up out of the ocean and passes sea lions and commercial fishermen and tribal fishermen and recreational fishermen and all the predators that are in the water and, like, you know, eight dam crossings and, you know, all this craziness, river otters, whatever, murder hornets. It's amazing that any of them make it back. But by the time a salmon makes it all the way back up here, and these things are black, they're slimy, they've got these big like zombie sores all over them. Um, This is not high quality table fare. So the kokanee is this, you know, tremendous alternative that I actually prefer to the saltwater salmon, even though that's like a really close second. Okay, so getting straight into gear. Let's start with a rod. I like cheap rods that are very flexible. Ugly sticks are a tremendous kokanee rod. So I'm going to try and find an eight or nine foot ultralight ugly stick. If I can find one of the old ones that's made out of fiberglass, even better. 
the kokanee has a very soft mouth. So once they hook up, there will be a little tear in their mouth um, around the hook. And if you fight them aggressively or if you allow them to jump, there's a good chance that this hook is going to come out of that hole, which is now bigger than the hook itself. Using a rod that has a great degree of flexibility is going to help you hold on to that fish because it, it's just adding so much more shock absorption into the system. And you're going to see that as a common trend throughout the rest of these gear items. And I'm also using a, a bait casting rod. So spinning rods, since we're tr primarily trolling for these kokanee, um, the line tends to twist up quite a bit more. It's just not, not as effective. So I'm using um, an ultralight rod that is really flexible, fairly inexpensive, and yeah, the ugly sticks are great. Um, there's plenty of more expensive kokanee rods out there that might might work a little bit better. I don't know. I've had just really good success with what I'm using. So that's what I'm going to talk about. For the reels, small bait casting reels with a smooth drag and, and a rugged system. So um, you're going to be using this drag quite a lot. You've got line coming in and out of the reel a lot. I want a very smooth retrieve. And again, that's to keep me from, and my clients from putting too much pressure and surges on these fish and, um, you know, creating bigger tears in their mouth and losing them. Um, Abu Garcia is a good one. I like line counters on the reel so that I can tell how far that gear is behind the boat. And depending on the size of the boat, how high the fish is in the water column, um, temperature, time of year, water clarity, weather, these things all determine how far my setback is. So for me, I'm fishing out of a 25-foot jet boat. Um, it's aluminum. It has an electrolysis signature that's going down into the water that can be um, tuned with some special devices. I don't use any of that. I've found that 23 yards behind the boat is the distance that I tend to catch the most fish regardless of temperatures. So I run my line 23 yards behind the boat um, on dry ground. Then I take a little piece of Dacron. I tie it onto the line just above the reel. And that way, if the batteries die in my line counter reel or if there's some other type of failure, I can just let line out until I see that Dacron and then I know. So that is a redundant system. But generally speaking, if you go you know, 70 to 100 feet behind the boat, you're going to be in a fairly good place. You could probably get away with a little bit less, a little bit smaller boat, a little bit bigger boat. You're going to have to set back a little bit farther. So that's the reel. Moving on to the line. Again, um, here's some good news. We want to use cheap line. Cheap line tends to stretch more. It's I'm So I'm using monofilament line. Eight pound test seems to be about right. Six pound test you can get away with. They're not super line shy as far as I can tell. I've tried low vis, I've tried high vis. I really don't know if it makes that much of a difference. I will say that when I was doing ultraviolet testing on different camouflage patterns and fabrics, I happened to run my, my UV light over some of that high vis line and it glows like a fiber optic sight on a bow. It is incredible. And I'm going to get into light diffusion a little bit later, but ultraviolet penetrates the water deeper than any other color. So chances are, even if I'm fishing in 90 feet of water, my high vis line is being illuminated by that ultraviolet. Whether that's a positive or a negative, I can't really say, but I will say that in the future, I will probably go away from the high vis line. I just don't see it as a big advantage. So monofilament line six or eight pound test, 10 if you're feeling fancy, uh, I would stay away from it because it just has that much more drag in the water. So we've gone from the rod through the reel, got the line, and now we are gonna talk about what the line goes to. I use Dodgers and I use a couple different kinds. Um, I use the Max Lure Dodger and the sling blade dodger and i'll use them in a couple different sizes but generally six to eight inches is the dodger size that i like there are a wide spectrum of dodger colors and this will be something that changes from one lake to another kokanee themselves are very bright they're they're dime bright as they say i like dodgers that have a photochromatic 
sticker on them. So silver with a lot of little shiny patterns so that I can get, you know, all those, um, all those blues and reds and things like that, that they hit it at, at different colors, because I feel like that is going to give me the best presentation with a variety of light conditions. The Dodgers doing a few things for Kokanee to attract them over to where your gear is. The first thing that is going the farthest distance is that Dodgers swinging back and forth in the water and it's creating pressure waves. So a fish can be become aware of those pressure waves from farther away than he can see the Dodger. And if he's attracted over to that Dodger, now he can start to get the visual stimulus of seeing light reflected off of it. And if it's a colored Dodger or a photochromatic one, whatever. So I'm using nickel colored Dodgers that have a photochromatic sticker on them. When you see them in the store, a lot of times there'll be a sticker on them that says UV. That is a little bit of a a marketing gimmick because UV is hitting all kinds of stuff, but that tends to be indicative of this photochromatic pattern that I'm talking about. Now we're going to go to the actual lure. So the distance behind the Dodger to the lure is a really critical feature. I tend to go one and a half times the length of the Dodger to the lure. So if I have an eight inch Dodger, I'm going to times that by 1.5 and that's going to give me 12 inches. So my distance behind the back of the Dodger to my lure is going to be 12 inches. So now we have this Dodger swinging back and forth in the water and it is going to be imparting some action onto that lure. The closer you have the lure to the dodger, the more action that the lure is going to have. The farther away, the less action. So by the time you get back to, say, 18 to 24 inches, you have almost no action being imparted onto the lure by the dodger. Dodger swinging back and forth. The lure is just kind of following it more or less static. So I like some action, but not a crazy amount. People get wigged out and they think that that's too close, that the dodger is going to like scare the fish or whatever. The dodger is there to attract the fish. And kokanee are a curious um, or a fish's version of curiosity uh, and a competitive species uh, in the way that all species are competitive when it comes to food. So he's going to get in there and and try and steal that food from, you know, what he may be considering another fish that's flashing back and forth uh, is my best guess on what's actually going on there. The colored Dodgers, I tend to stay away from, um, you know, I, I just like the ones that shine better. So the types of lures, there's, there's a couple different families. There's the apex lure family, and that's going to be this curved plastic flatfish looking thing that has a couple trailing hooks behind it. It has a lot of action on its own. So that's one that we can go ahead and set 24 inches behind the Dodger because it's going to have its own action to be able to, to do stuff with. For colors on those... You know, just hold on until I get to the light transfusion, and then that will all make more sense. The next family is the the hoochie family. So a hoochie is uh, a little squid, a little plastic rubber squid-shaped thing. And you'll see some that have blades in front of them. They come in a wide variety of colors. I like ones that are an inch to an inch and a half, sometimes three-quarters of an inch, but inch and a half tends to work pretty well for me. That's another family of lures that'll be really common. The next one is wedding rings. This is the tried and true. So it's going to have a small blade in the front and then a couple rows of stacked beads that are sort of welded together. So there'll be a a small bead graduating up to a little bit larger one, a little bit larger one, a little bit larger one. And then there's a little micro wedding ring right in the middle. And it's got little fake jewels in the middle of that. And then you go big bead, a little bit smaller bead, a little bit smaller bead, small speed, and then the hooks. If you get scared, use a wedding ring. Fantastically popular, very effective, all kinds of fisheries kind of one of those don't go kokanee fishing without them type deals and i think that's about it so if you've got some apex lures you got some hoochies you got some wedding rings um you're you're going to be in a good place there's some other funky stuff like little flies and and bugs that people try 
tried it. Hasn't been super successful for me. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. Probably am. But yeah. Hooks. Hooks are important. I like octopus shaped hooks. And I can tell you right now that they are never sharp enough out of the package. So get yourself a little ceramic hook sharpener, uh, steel, either your wife or your husband's little nail filer emery thing. You know, it doesn't take much and uh, just sharpen one side of that hook. So it'll be kind of a single bevel and don't have to worry about sharpening the other side. The, the metal tends to be fairly soft, so it sharpens quickly. It doesn't take a lot of effort. You'll know it's sharp when you kind of drag that hook across your thumbnail or across your skin and it catches really, really well. And after every couple fish or after every time fishing, just go ahead and touch up those hooks. It only takes a couple seconds, makes a huge difference on how many fish you actually get into your boat, which is the purpose of being out here. Hooks. Use two of them. Two hooks. Staggered, you know, a quarter inch or so apart, half inch apart. And we're going to get into bait here in just a second. But I put the bait on the top hook, so the hook that is closest to the boat. And that way, when that fish comes up, if he short strikes, you know, it's like he's a little bit non-committal, he's just going to kind of run in there. If he short strikes at that, there's a secondary hook there that can hook him up, get him involved. Bait. A lot of people like synthetic baits, like power bait. They use all kinds of crazy scents. There's a bunch of like people use this licorice stuff um, called anise. They use uh, stuff called tuna blood. They use krill oil. They use shrimp oil. They use salmon oil. Um, Stuff with really funky names. I think scent probably helps a little bit, but I tend to just add the scent to the bait. Unless I'm using maggots. Maggots are a really popular bait here. They're a little bit more expensive. You know, you get a well, not that expensive. A couple bucks gets you like a little chew can of, you know, a couple hundred other things, but they don't last all that long. And if you don't keep them cold, you'll crack the lid on that thing and flies will come out or all the maggots will have hardened into, into cases and are no longer useful. But I like the, the color of them. I think that helps. They're a little bit, they're kind of a pale color. It's not that gross. Um, when I fished with my granddad as a kid and it was cold, he'd put the maggots in his lip to keep him warm. That was gross. No question about it. I'm not going to do that. I'm not, I'm not like a, a, a guy that puts maggots in his lip. But, you know, if, if that's what you're into, I, I don't think there's any laws against it. So, you know, go ahead. Uh, other bait that's really popular is shoe peg corn. It's a type of corn that is extra sweet. It's it's basically white in color. I'm told that it has an amino acid that's attractive to, to fish. I don't know if I buy the amino acid thing, but it is a good way to hold on to scent. So what I like to do is add my scent to the corn, and then I have this Procure Kokanee Cure pink stuff that I sprinkle in there. So I dump out the corn. I add in my scent. I sprinkle in this this little pink granular stuff, shake it up, put it in the fridge. The Procure has has some scent properties in it uh, that, of course, is advertised as like guaranteed to catch fish. I don't know about that, but it does harden that corn up a little bit, makes it a little bit tougher, and it turns it pink, which is a very good color for kokanee in most portions of the water column that I target the fish. Anyways, that's what I do with that. You can just roll straight up white shoe pig corn. Um, When you hook it, there's the part of the corn kernel that touches the corn cob, and then there's the other part that's nice and rounded. We hook through the rounded part because that makes it very hydrodynamic. I'm not trying to take away from the action of this lure that it has on its own if it's an apex or is being imparted onto it by the dodger if it is a wedding ring or a hoochie. So you hook it through the top. One piece of corn on the top hook is what I do. Other people have like a whole cornfield worth of corn on every hook. And it's this big globular stuff. They catch fish too. So figure out what works for you. My go-to bait is definitely corn with scent dyed pink with Procure. And now we're going to get into presentation of this gear. So we've kind of got the rod reel line set up. We're onto the dodger, then we're back to the lure. 
let's say that we're just going to go with a wedding ring because that's like the baseline staple kokanee fishing lure. Got my smelly pink corn on there. And now I need to get it to where the fish are. Now, a kokanee wants to be in water that is between 50 and 52 degrees. That's where he can feed actively. Now, they can spend a lot of their life in water that's 34 degrees. They can spend some time in water that's in the 60s, although they don't really like it. As a lake warms up in the springtime, what you'll actually see, you'll, you'll hear people talk about a lake turning over. That's not really what I've experienced in taking a lot of temperature surveys, at least on my lake. What I see is that there's always a layer of somewhat warmer water on the bottom because water at four degrees Celsius is actually its densest. That's the densest temperature of water. So that means it sinks down. So there's this belt of warmer water right on the very bottom of the lake, and then it gets cold. And, you know, that's going to be a water that's right above freezing. And that cold water is going to rise up to something that we call the thermocline. And the thermocline will be where that cold water transitions into water that's heated from solar radiation. And then it will get gradually hotter until you get to the surface where the water will be its absolute warmest. Now, there is some stuff with limnology, the study of lake temperatures and stuff, um, where wind in the fall, wind in the spring can mix up these temperatures a little bit more. What I experience, hottest on top, gets colder, hits the thermocline, stays at that very cold temperature until you're close to the bottom, and then you have that belt of somewhat warmer water. So you'll see a lot of fish that live exclusively on the bottom of these cold water lakes, and they are benefiting from that somewhat warmer water that is right down there at the bottom. That's why you don't see them 15 feet off the bottom nearly as much. So I use um, this little thing called a, a TD temperature hawk. It's, it's a thermometer that I can clip onto my downrigger cable. So I'll send my downrigger weight down you know, 90 feet. And then I'll, I'll clip this little guy on and drop him in the water. And it will take the temperature on the surface. And then it'll give me a temperature readout at every five foot interval on the way down. So if I'm wondering where to find this 50 degree water, that's what I do. And uh, these things cost, I don't know, uh, 120 bucks. It's, it's definitely an extra expense and it's not necessary, but for me, when I'm going out with clients and it's really important to them to have a good experience, catch fish, that's what they're paying for. I want to know exactly which depth to start looking for fish that are actively feeding. So, you know, I drop it down right now, this time of year is kind of the back end of, of when I'm going to be kokanee fishing in this area, although you can continue to do it all summer long. So right now that, that temperature band that I'm looking for is about 50 feet deep. So that's where I'm going to target. Now, if you don't know what a downrigger is, it's a, it's a device. It's like a reel with a boom that goes on the side of the boat and goes down to a weight. And it has a little gauge that reads how deep that weight is. So you can release a lever, a clutch lever, and this weight is going to descend down. So I'm going to send this weight down to, to 50 feet. Prior to that, it has a little release clip on it. So I send my, my gear 23 yards behind the boat, and then I take my line, I put it into this release clip that's attached to the downrigger weight, and then I lower the downrigger weight to the depth that I want to fish, which is 50 feet. So 50 feet deep, 23 yards behind the boat is where my gear is. Now I'm fishing. And I've got my gear right in that temperature band that's between 50 and 52 degrees. That's just my current conditions. Okay. So you're going to have to figure out where that temperature line is in your body of water at, at a specific time of year. You know, when we start fishing, the surface temp is, you know, in the low 40s. But a fish doesn't want to be on the surface of the lake because then he gets smoked by ospreys and eagles and he gets wigged out by boats coming over the top of him. So they tend to be scattered out throughout the water column a little bit more sporadically. Anyways, start shallow when it's super cold. As it warms up, you're going to have to go deeper. That's the bottom line. A downrigger allows you to keep your gear at a very specific depth. Now you can put 
two lines on one downrigger. So you can put your first clip right to the weight and send it down 10 feet, 12 feet, something like that. And you can put another clip on the cable and run a second line to that. And now you're fishing at, say you split them by 10 feet. You can send your downrigger weight to 60 feet and then your next line up will be at 50 feet. So now you're presenting in two different portions of the water column. I fish with three downriggers on my boat. So if I split all of those, I can be fishing six different depths. And then once I figure out which depth the fish are hitting the most at, I can kind of crowd my gear and concentrate on that depth. Depth is incredibly important. You'll see fish on your fish finder that you know, are 10 feet deep and fish that are 120 feet deep, but you need to figure out where the players are. And the depth is going to be the determining factor for where to find those fish that are actively feeding. Okay. So we figured out the depth and we've got our downrigger down there and now we're trolling. If you don't want to go through the expense of having a downrigger or say you're just in a, in a canoe or a kayak or, or whatever, you can also use banana weights. Banana weights are a lead weight that is shaped like a banana. You'll put that right on the front of your dodger. It's got swivels on both sides of it. And it actually gives a good anchor point for the front of that dodger to connect to. And I like the action that I get out of a dodger when I have it connected with a banana weight. And you, you tend to feel the bites a little bit better because that fish isn't pulling against a 10-pound lead weight down there at the bottom of the cable like with a downrigger. There are some advantages. The disadvantage is that it's impossible to know exactly how deep you are. There are some charts that will show you the depth that you should be at if you're going, you know, one mile an hour and your gear is 100 feet back and you're using eight-pound tests with one and a half ounces of weight. I don't know if I can really drink that Kool-Aid or not, but you you can get close. But you can kind of just play around with different weights and different setbacks, distances behind the boat until you start catching fish. And, you know, then the next week when you go out, you're going to know that the water temp is a little bit warmer. So now you either need to set farther back or add more weight. So banana weights are, you know, a a $3 option instead of, you know, buying a $600 downrigger. If you are going to get set up with downriggers, just bite the bullet and get electric ones. Um, They make manual ones. If you don't have electric capabilities on your boat, I get it. Something that will happen to you is you will put the, uh, the line in the release clip and you won't have it in tight enough. You'll drop your gear down to 80 feet or whatever, and um, just the the pull on your gear will pop it out of the clip. And if you have a manual one, now you got to crank it back up and you crank, 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 crank. You're fishing, right? You don't want to be wasting time cranking on a dang old downrigger for no good reason. So electric ones, man, you can just spin a button. She comes right back up. You can save some time. You can be bringing your downrigger way up while you're reeling in a fish so that as soon as you get that fish off the hook, get some new bait on, get your gear back out. You can be descending back down to the layer, layer that the fish are at and, uh, and catching them up a little bit better. And I try to be as economical with my time Um, when I'm fishing as possible, meaning that I want that gear functioning in the water as much as possible. So with fly fishing, with, with trolling, any kind of fishing, a hook in the water is like the fundamental bare essential. You got to have it in order to catch a fish. So the more time that you spend with your hook in the air, with your gear out of the water, the fewer fish you're going to catch bottom line. So I'm trying to be efficient with my time out there. So banana weights, definitely an option and, uh, downriggers go electric. If you can, if you can't go manual and then downrigger release clips, Scotty makes some good ones that are like a rubber, uh, clothespin pinchy clip thing. Those work really well. I've used them a lot. Kokanee have a hard time actually breaking them out of the clip. So you'll just see a really subtle tick on the rod tip while it's in the downrigger. And then you've got a you know, lift up on the rod, pull the line out of that downrigger clip, and then reel your fish in. But I'm using ones that uh, I can't remember the name of, but they have a magnet in them, uh, Chamberlain, Chamberlain clips. 
So they have a magnet in them and and a little uh, set screw so that you can change the tension between what the rod is actually pushing on it when you you know reel down on the rod to the tension that the fish can pull to break it loose. So I have these things spun out so that at like one and a half pounds of pressure um, from the fish, he can break it loose. But from the rod, I can put like eight pounds of pressure on there. So I can really tighten up this rod when it's in the rod holder and get down there. And then a fish can still break it loose fairly easily. So those have been something that I use this year. I found them at the Portland Sportsman's Show. Talked to the guy that that engineered them, super sweet guy, and they've worked well for me. So if you've got the the downrigger clip blues, you might check out the Chamberlains. Another option is planer boards. Um, You can have inline planer boards that clip onto your line. That can get your gear out away from the boat. Or you can use big planer boards that attach to a mast, or I use sturgeon rods, and you can run a different type of clip off those something I've been experimenting with this year and it has been very, very effective for me, but it is gear intensive and requires quite a bit of trial and error to figure out how to do it. Okay. So we've got our gear out there with whatever we decided to use. Now we need to talk about speed. So speed is absolutely critical for catching these fish. Kokanee don't want to chase stuff down in a lake. Nothing in a lake really likes to to chase their food down. Generally speaking, between 0.8 and 1.3 miles an hour, I like to split the difference and I I do my very best to stay at 1.1 miles per hour. Uh, If I go to 1.2 or 1.3, I catch a lot fewer fish. If I go down to 0.9 or 0.8, I catch a lot fewer fish. I fish at 1.1, works for me. You'll have to figure out what works for you. If your fish are in a little bit warmer water for whatever situation you're going to want to go faster. If they're in colder water, you're going to want to go slower because um, their metabolism and their ability to speed up their activity level is in a lot of ways determined by the ambient temperature that that fish is in. Direction. I like to troll perpendicular to the sun Instead of parallel with the sun, I think that gives extra light to that photochromatic sticker that is on my Dodger. I feel like I catch more fish like that. I haven't actually run out of data sheet to tell, but that's the the general technique and you might as well. You can, you know, troll around in circles or figure eights or clover, clover patterns or whatever makes you happy. But I try to make a big oval, like a racetrack, like a foot foot racetrack. Uh, and I want the long edges of that track to be um, perpendicular to the sun. So give that a try. See if it helps. Depth, uh, we went over, but you're just going to have to find the depth that those fish are actively feeding and, and being willing to bite your gear. Light diffusion. Color changes as um, as something descends in the water. So if I take a, a red rock and I throw it in a lake, after you know 20 feet of water, that is no longer going to be visible as red. That color washes out. And that happens at, to different colors at different depths. And the depth is going to be determined by how much light can actually get through the water, how clear that water is the angle of the light at that time, a few other factors. But turbidity is probably the biggest factor um, for allowing how much light can get into the water. But the way to think about this is with the color of the rainbow. Red, orange, yellow, indigo, green, blue, violet, ultraviolet. Um, Of course, we can't see infrared, which is above red. We can't see ultraviolet, which is below violet. But UV is getting the absolute deepest, and infrared is washing out the absolute quickest. So if I'm going to be fishing at 60 or 70 or 80 feet, I'm going to be looking at that blue to purple part of the color spectrum for my lure and hoping that those colors are still popping off that photochromatic label on my dodger. If I'm up on the surface, red orange, 
those are the colors that that I'm really going to be targeting. Pink um, is probably one of my most important colors. And I like the combination of orange and pink. So my go-to for the most part from zero to 30 feet of depth is going to be an orange wedding ring with a pink piece of corn on it. And I'm telling you, I catch, you know, 70 to 80% of my fish just like that. So that the sort of sherbet color. White um, stays the same at every depth. Black stays the same at every depth. Gold, brass, silver, those stay more or less the same at every depth. So if you want just one Dodger to rule them all, you know, think about Dodgers in that color spectrum. Same thing with lures. But orange and, and pink tend to be kind of triggering for these kokanee. If you're in the, you know, 30 to 40 foot range, you might look at a yellow um, getting into a green and then, you know, as you get below that, you know, your green chartreuse and then get into blue and violet. So think about that for depth. Uh, color isn't everything to a fish. I think it matters the least of everything, but color does matter. So, um, presentation is, is foremost, but when a fish gets right up to it, color helps. And if you can't see any color at all, then, why did you even bother picking that color is the question you need to ask yourself. Now, we've, uh, we've done all this and we've got this magical moment where a fish has bitten our super sharp hooks and he's hooked up. And we're going to assume that you went ahead and got electric downriggers. So you're seeing the tip of that rod just barely moving. It's like, oh man, we got a fish. So you're going to run over. You're not going to waste any time. You're going to grab the rod. You're going to pull it out of the rod holder. Reel down until the rod tip is in the water. Put your thumb on the spool and then lift up. And that is going to be pulling that line out of your downrigger release clip. But keep in mind that you have a 90 degree angle. So you've gone down 50 feet to your downrigger ball and then you're 23 yards back to your gear. So you've got this big right angle, this big 90 degree angle in your line. So you're going to pull it out and you're going to feel nothing but slack. So now you're going to reel. You're going to reel fast until you start to pick up tension and feel that gear in that fish. And now you need to slow down. All you have to do at this point is maintain pressure on the fish. Not a lot of pressure, but just enough pressure to keep like the top third of your rod bent. And as you bring that fish in, he's going to be rising to the surface. And a lot of times they'll hit the surface when they're 20 or 30 feet away from the boat. As you see the, the line angle changing and getting shallower and that fish rising, what I want you to do is take the tip of your rod and put it underneath the water. A lot of us have been taught to, to fight fish with your rod tip up in the air. But what will happen is if that fish comes up to the surface and splashes or jumps, your line now comes completely out of the water and you have this rigid line going from the tip of your rod straight to the fish. And as he's thrashing around, remember, super soft mouth, you know, this hook tore a hole. Now he can get off of your gear and you will get to watch that fish swim away, not into your fish box, your bucket or whatever. All right, it's very heartbreaking. You'll lose about two-thirds of your fish for, for however long until you kind of start to figure this out. Some of them are hooked up really well. There's no way they're going to get off. But a lot of them are hooked softly, and you'll you know get them close to the boat, and then they'll start to fight a little bit harder, and that's where you lose them. It's heartbreaking. So you want to reel nice and slow. If it's a big fish, I'm going to turn my boat towards that fish and kind of like, like I'm going to take a big circle around him and that'll take some of the pressure off. Especially if I see somebody that's fighting a fish really aggressively, I might slow the boat down or, or turn because in the moment it can be difficult to coach somebody that, you know, they are not fighting a smallmouth bass with Babe Winkleman and they need to chill out a little bit if they want that fish to get in the boat. So, you know, I tell people to fight a fish like a six-year-old girl. Six-year-old girls on my boat, you know, they're thinking about Barbie or their hair or whatever. And, you know, they just casually turn the reel handle. They don't pump the rod. They don't set the hook. They don't do anything wild. 
and they boat more fish than anybody else. So take a, take a note from them. Um, netting fish. I like a net that can extend as, as far out as possible. So I think my net extends out to 12 feet. The farther out I can net that fish, the better, because the closer he gets to the boat, the less stretch there is in the line, the less water there is to absorb some of the shock of him thrashing around on that line. And, uh, yeah, the more fish that I can get in the boat. So collapsible handle, um, extendable handle on those nets. Um, the one I use is a fray bill and the actual net material itself is rubberized and it has a pretty small, small mesh. The rubberized is easier on a fish that you want to release and the hooks don't get caught in it nearly as badly. Um, so again, it's a matter of efficiency and getting your gear in the water functioning a little bit better. If you are the guy or gal on the net, keep in mind that a fish can only swim in one direction and that is forward. So don't try and scoop him up from the tail like he's a aquatic butterfly. You want to put the net in front of him and let him swim into it. If you're the guy or the gal on the rod, this is teamwork time. You are trying to bring the fish into the net. So something that a lot of people tend to do is they'll get the fish close. And as soon as he comes over the net, um, you know, they just start lifting and pretty soon the fish is like out of the water, swinging, flailing wildly around through the air. And, you know, I'm just chasing it with the net and hoping that it somehow ends up in either the net or the boat and not with a hook in my earlobe, uh, for example. So teamwork, trying to get the fish in the net. Keep, keep that in mind. Now, we've got the fish. He's in the boat. High fives all around. I want you to take the hook out of the fish. Make sure it's still sharp. And then let out a little bit of line, put the rod in the rod holder, and the gear is going to go in the water a few feet behind the boat. And that way it's not going to end up in anybody's toes or get stepped on or bent or broken or whatever. Now it's out of the boat. It's safe. We've got the fish. What are we going to do with fish? Um, If you have a live well, you can throw them in there. Uh, If you have ice, you can throw them on ice. If you have a bucket full of water, you can throw them in there. I think keeping the fish wet is important. The best thing you can possibly do is take a knife and cut through his gills and throw him in a, in a bucket with a little bit of water and let all that blood get out of him and then put that fish on ice immediately. And then at the end of the day, you can fillet or gut the fish however you like and you'll have you know the highest quality product. So that's the way to treat those fish. Now we spend a day fishing, um, you know, of course, everybody caught their limits because you listened to this podcast and you took notes and now it is time to eat these things. Kokanee love smoke. All salmon love smoke, but you know, these, these real rich, fatty, bright, red, orange colored, fleshy fish, man, they take smoke really well. So the best way to do that is to put them on a pellet grill. I use a Traeger grill, works really well. If I'm just going to cook them for a meal, if it's a big fish, I'm going to cut them in half into fillets. If um, it's a little fish, I'm going to leave them whole, just gutted. And I cook them for 17 minutes at 375 degrees. And I'm at 4,000 foot elevation. So you can adjust uh, time and temperature a little bit if you're higher or lower than me. But that is a really good baseline. So I just put a little bit of salt on them. And I I cook them 375 for 17. Pull them off. You'll know that they're ready if you touch them with your your big old fingertip or or with a fork. And that flesh kind of flakes apart. And they'll get a little bit darker color from from that beautiful Traeger smoke. And, uh, yeah, now it's time. So I just put a little bit of sea salt on there. Now I'm going to peel them off, peel them off the grill, take the skin off, pull the bones out. I've got these, you know, this really nice salmon sitting here in front of me. I make a sauce with mayonnaise, mustard, wasabi, and dill. And I put that on the side. Not everybody's into it. I love it. Uh, and I'll spread that out on my beautiful little kokanee and eat them. And it's good. It's good for you. And it makes you smart. So that is how I catch kokanee, folks. And just some parting thoughts, because I, 
I would like to get this information to this gentleman. And when I was explaining stuff to him today, it was evident and and he told me that he wouldn't be able to remember the things that I was telling him due to his brain injuries. And I have brain injuries as well. So I can really, I can sympathize with that. Um, And that's why I wanted to do this. So if anybody listens to this and you know that guy, you know who I'm talking about, you know, help help him out and try and get him a, a link to this podcast. If you know somebody else who is kokanee fishing and wants to learn more about it and is struggling, send this to them. Or if there's kokanee in a nearby lake and you want to give it a try, now you know where to start. And, you know, you can get as involved with it as, as you want, but really you can go out there with a with a rented canoe and uh, and the the GPS on your phone and a rod and a banana weight and you know you can be in this for for 150 bucks and and go out there and and catch some really good fish and enjoy yourself and spend time with family. Uh, Kokanee can be a really prolific fishery. There's places you know where you can catch you know 50 or 60 fish in a day. Some of them get pretty big. Mostly they don't. But it is a good time and something that's that's fun to do with friends, something that I enjoy taking my friends and family and clients out to do a lot. And I hope you learned something from this. But if you learned nothing about kokanee fishing, what I want you to take away from this is that you can share your knowledge without it threatening your experience in that field. Confidence is something that you have to earn, and you earn it through experience, through experimentation, through challenging yourself. And then once you have that confidence and you have that knowledge and you have that experience, be generous with it and and share it with other people. But just because you've reached the point where you're sharing your knowledge and your skills with somebody else does not mean that you get to rest. Now is the time more than ever to continue learning and find new ways that you can improve and and seek that improvement. Don't just sit back and, you know, have an open heart and an open mind and be re- be ready and be willing to learn. You have to go after it and and seek out that knowledge. So that's what I'm going to leave you with. And, you know, this is uh this has been fun for me to talk with you guys about if you want to learn more about Kokanee or if you have questions, uh, which I hope you do, you can find me at Six Ranch Podcast or at Six Ranch Outfitters, and I'll help you out because I'm not afraid to share this information with you, and I hope that you can share something that you know with somebody else. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show on kokanee fishing, and I hope that it reaches the ears of the gentleman who got to watch me jump in the lake like a damn idiot and swim out and get my boat that I hadn't tied up well enough. And I hope that that guy can take this information and go and catch himself a kokanee. And I hope you guys do too. This podcast was edited by Emily Brannigan, and its artwork was done by John Chatelain and Celia Christofferson. And the music was from Justin Hay, who wrote it and whistled it and performed it. Bunch of talented folks. Really appreciate these guys. Hope you're having a good day, and I hope you learned something. I'll catch you next time.